the 17th century, there was a magnificent palace that stood in Berlin. It was a statement to the joy, to the power of, um, where she is? Take a moment and pray. Father, thanks so much for letting us open your word uh, together today. We pray that your Holy Spirit would use this time to influence all of us toward you. We pray for a situation going on here in our auditorium. We thank you for teams that can help and people that can help. We ask that you would give us a focus today on your word and that this message and the panel that we have today would remind us of your power and your love. In Christ's name, amen. So I was telling you about a palace that was in Germany. Uh, this was the 17th century. The Rus Prussian government had this. It was a testimony to their power, to their royalty. Um, that was damaged in World War II, and during World War II, during the bombing, it was damaged, and when Germany was divided, it became part of East Germany, and under the communist East Germany government, this building was destroyed because they didn't want any vestiges of any previous powers. They wanted only the communist power at that time to be recognized, so they demolished this, and it's that emptied. In fact, it was a parking lot for many years until 1970. And then in 1970, the East German government, the communist government, realized that a lot of the people in East Germany, especially close to the wall, were kind of hearing and picking up that there was another world on the other side of that wall, and there was consumerism, and there was life, and there was fun, and there was recreation, and all kinds of things you could do. So they wanted to make something in their city that would give people the illusion of being free. So they turned this property into what they called the Palace of the Republic, but that palace soon became, even to the people in East Germany, a symbol of hypocrisy because while it was made to be a building where there were some government offices and recreation and all the things that you could buy things, it was all under the communist rule. So you were still being listened to everywhere you went. They were still being controlled. So there really wasn't any freedom. And then the 1980s came. There were protests across Eastern, Germany, or Eastern Europe and the communism was falling apart. The Palace of the Republic, after the, the destruction of the Berlin Wall, was the place where they actually had the final vote to leave communist Germany and to join what we would call the Federal Republic of West Germany in 1990. And then this building just sat empty. It sat empty for many years, full of asbestos. Nobody knew what to do with it. It was sort of a testimony to a failed attempt at governing. And nobody liked this building. Nobody used this building. So the citizens of former East Germany once again were thrown into this new political reality, trying to figure out how to move forward. The government they had didn't work. Now they were told to be free. They didn't really quite know how to do that. So on a cold day in 2005, an artist climbed upon the roof of this building and he installed seven giant letters. Each of these letters were 26 feet tall that spelled out, the German word Zweifel. I was in Germany several years ago with a church planter. We were doing some church planting work there and went by this building and this word was on the top of this building spelled out and the church planter said, John, do you know what that means? And I said, no, what does that mean? He said, that, that's the word doubt. So this artist had put for everyone in Berlin to see what was kind of a social commentary for the German people like doubt. Does anyone really have our interests at mind? 
Is anyone really for us? All of the governments, all of the decisions, all the things in our history have just shown time after time after time after time were failed and let down. Doubt. You might put that on different areas in your life or maybe on our government right now. It's like, is this going to ever work like it's supposed to? And are we ever going to, to care about the real needs of what's going on in our country or in our people or in our state or community or maybe in your own financial dealings? Um, doubt can, can lead us to despair. It can also lead us to determination. At its root, doubt is simply being uncertain about something. That's all that doubt really is being suspended between two possibilities. I can, it's kind of tricky though, because I can actually doubt whether you're telling me the truth. And that doubt can be rooted in, I have objective data that speaks, uh, that says something different than what you're telling me. Or I can doubt that you're telling me the truth just because I don't like the color of your hair or the shirt you're wearing or where you came from or your political party. So, so my doubt may or may not have any substantive rooted in, in real, substance in the reality of what's going on there, sometimes doubt can keep us from experiencing something really good. We can doubt, and that doubt leads us to avoid something that would really help us. But doubt also helps us to avoid disappointment sometimes. Sometimes we have doubt, and it keeps us from harm. As a pastor, I talk to many, many people who struggle with doubt. And it varies so widely as to who that person is, where that doubt stems from in their heart, the content of their doubt. But it can look like this. I've repented and trusted in Christ for my salvation, but sometimes I worry that I'm not saved. I just don't know if I'm going to get in. Yes, I've believed. Yes, I've trusted in Jesus. Yes, I read my Bible, but I just don't know. I've also heard people say, sometimes I wonder if what we believe is the right way. I know, I believe it, I trust it, I'm, I'm affirming everything, but, but every once in a while I wonder, what if we're wrong? What if we're wrong? What if we are Christians just because we're in America and if we would have been born in another country, we'd be another religion? What if we're wrong? What do you do with that kind of doubt? And this one we touched on a few weeks ago. The Bible says God's love and he answers our prayers, but I had a 13-year-old nephew who committed suicide. That doesn't feel like a loving God. It doesn't feel like a God who loves and looks out for us. There's no one size fits all when it comes to doubt. Very different. But I want to make it clear that it's a misconception to say that doubt is always equivalent to unbelief. It's a misconception to say that doubt is always equivalent to unbelief. Doubt may lead to unbelief, but doubt can also lead us to a stronger faith. Sometimes it's more information that we need to help us with our doubt. Help us with those questions that fog our clarity. And, and that might be more data we need. It might be more information. It might be a better understanding. This seems to be the case for Thomas in John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, we read verse 24. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, named the, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. This was after his resurrection. They told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said, I won't believe unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days, eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wounds in my side. 
Don't be faithless anymore, Thomas. Do you hear that? Don't be faithless anymore. Believe. Thomas exclaimed, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. For many who have doubts, this is the answer. This is, this is where we need to go. A more accurate view of God, a more accurate view of God and who he is, his character through, through the word of God, through the community of faith, the church, the brothers and sisters that we worship with and we're in small group with, also through our own experience of the more we experience God as being a faithful God, a loving God, carrying us through those problems, the more we're able to trust in him and those gaps get smaller and smaller. But doubt often helps us to clear up uncertainty. In fact, doubt, doubt often raises important questions even belief, within our belief system and our practices as a church, doesn't it? Doubt sometimes is like, are, are, are we really doing this how God wanted us to do it? Is this what church is really supposed to look like? Is this what Jesus had in mind when he said, go make disciples? Or are we missing something? Doubt helps us at times. In fact, people like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Knox and others had doubts about how the church was doing the mission in their days. Isn't that true? These are the Protestant reformers. We actually are kind of glad that they had doubts. They doubted whether the church at the time was actually living out the gospel the way the Bible tells us to live. Interestingly enough, we celebrate their doubt, but we tend to resist anyone who has doubts about the way we're doing it, don't we? I mean, it's like, no, no, this is the right way. But, but then there was someone who doubted, and I was like, well, thank you for caring enough. Thank you for looking in the word enough. Thank you for being diligent enough to wonder, is this really the way it should be? At other times, doubt stems from a lack of faith. We truly don't have enough faith. We're not believing strong enough. We're all on a journey. We're all walking through life, and the challenges that come up stretch us and sometimes break us, force us to look to God in different and new ways. Sometimes I've heard people describe it, I, I can't put God in the boxes I used to put him in, but I'm closer to him now than I've ever been because he just doesn't fit anymore, but I'm, I'm closer to him, and I'm doubting some of the categories I used to use, but I'm closer to him. Sometimes fear and the voices in our head are stronger than the belief that we have, and it causes us to waver. This is what happened to Peter in Matthew 14, isn't it? Jesus had sent the disciples ahead of him. He'd been praying. He sent the disciples ahead on the Sea of Galilee in a boat to go to the other side. In the middle of the night, Jesus decided he was ready to go to the other side, so he started walking across the lake, which he could because he made it and he could walk on top of it. And he was walking across the lake. And as he got to the boat in the middle of the storm, the disciples were really, really afraid. They thought there was a ghost there. We'll pick up in verse 27 of Matthew 14. Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid. Take courage. I'm here. Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, come tell, tell me to come to you on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. That's a really powerful verse, isn't it? Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he, when he saw the strong wind and waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith. Why did you doubt me? 
really important. Faith has an object. Why did you doubt me? They climbed in the boat. The wind stopped. They worshiped him. You really are the son of God. This is so helpful for us because Peter got out of the boat at the invitation of Jesus and he was succeeding at doing something that we're not supposed to do, walk on water. And he was doing it because Jesus invited him to. And because in that invitation, there was the power, there was the efficacy to be able to do that. And something happened. What happened, Jesus didn't change. He was still the Jesus who said, come walk on the water to me. But all of a sudden, the wind and the waves, which were happening before, nothing, the storm didn't just blow up. The text tells us it already was happening. And Peter began to to take notice more of the circumstances going on around him than of the Jesus of the God who called him to get out of the boat or walk to him. And at that moment, his faith wavered and he began to sink. Why did you waver? As long as Peter believed and had his focus on Jesus, he was able to do that miracle. And this is true in all of our lives. So faith is always focused on a source. And the remedy for this kind of doubt is to refresh ourselves with the source. It's to get deeper into the God who calls us, deeper into our relationship with Jesus Christ, who walks with us, deeper into the power of the Holy Spirit, who gives us that empowerment to live the Christian life. In this regard, the path of a growing Christian, growing Christian maturity is overcoming doubt, developing a settled faith. That's one way just to describe the Christian life is overcoming doubt because I'm overcoming doubt as I'm more in tune with who God is and how he's calling me to live my life. There's another kind of doubt, though, that I want to mention that we have to be very careful to guard against. This kind of doubt is rooted in moral or intellectual skepticism and resistance against God. This, this kind of doubt has a rebellious posture toward God. It's a contempt of who God is. We have to be very careful. We have to be we have to be on guard against that kind of doubt creeping into our hearts and our minds. This kind of doubt is unwilling to be persuaded by the truth. This kind of doubt is resistant to the work of the Holy Spirit changing me, melting my heart. This kind of doubt is an obstinate, in God's face kind of doubt that refuses to hear and know. This is the culpable revolt of the serpent in Genesis 3 or the demon's in James chapter 2, verse 19, where we read that the demons believed in God. That is, they actually acknowledged he is who he says he is, and yet they oppose him. And yet they oppose him. When doubts are true expressions of unbelief like this, the only cure is repentance and a life-transforming encounter with Jesus Christ. It's important to know that doubt isn't like an all or nothing, like I'm just having an unbelief kind of doubt or I'm just having the information kind of doubt or I'm just having I need more faith kind of doubt. It usually is blended together. And what we have to be careful of is sometimes what can start is a doubt as to whether or not God is really good or a doubt as to whether we're really doing church like we should do or a doubt whether that miracle really happened can creep in these kind of unbelief, a contempt of who God is, his character can creep in. So sometimes when people come and talk to me about doubt, there's part of it that I do need to, you do need to repent of. There's part of it you do need to get more understanding of. There's part of it you do need to just, you're just a cynical person and you're going to be cynical. And there's part of it we need to understand in those different categories. Jude chapter, Jude, not Jude chapter, Jude verse 22 is a guiding verse 
for, for how we respond to doubt in the church. Simply says, and you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. If you read the paragraph, that's the whole flavor of this paragraph in Jude. Show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Not judgment, not criticism, not moral spiritual superiority, mercy. There should be no judgment. Keep in mind that, that doubt always has a lot of tributaries flowing into it. Past disappointments can flow into it. Personal brokenness, the way you've been wounded, the way that other person has been wounded in their life can flow into doubt. A lot of times if people have the doubt of, of God as their heavenly loving father, maybe they had a father on this earth that wasn't so loving. So there's doubt there. Um, sometimes there's emotional or physical illness. I talk to people a lot who are struggling with depression and, and they're worried because I'm a pastor and they go to church and they're like, boy, one of the biggest things that scares me is I, I, I sometimes have doubt about God. I have doubt about my faith. And I'm like, you're depressed, you have doubt about everything, right? As right now, your whole life is in this cloud. It would be unreasonable not to expect that your, 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 your faith would, or it would be unreasonable to expect your faith would be excluded from that. And as I alluded to earlier, some people are just cynical people. They're skeptical about a lot of things. And so that carries over into their faith journey. Again, the answer for us is to show mercy, is to show mercy, to allow God's mercy to be on people. Uh, Psalm chapter 77 is just one of many examples of what I think is a way to process healthy doubt as a believer. Psalm 77, I'll start with verse seven. Has the Lord rejected me forever? Will he never again be kind to me? Is his unfailing love gone forever? Have his promises permanently failed? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he slammed the door on his compassion? I said, this is my fate. The Most High has turned his hand against me. But then I recall all you've done, O Lord. I remember your wonderful deeds of long ago. They are constantly in my thoughts. I cannot stop thinking about your mighty works, O God. Your ways are holy. Is there any God as mighty as you? Those are happening at the same time in the psalmist's life and heart. God, have you totally abandoned me? But I remember, I remember you were there. I had a Bible college professor who, who said, never doubt in the darkness what you know to be true in the light. So there's, there's some chairs up here. If all the lights would go off in this room, it would become totally black. I couldn't know for sure that there were chairs back there, but there were, they were there when the lights were on, so I'm going to operate as though they were there when the lights go off. That's the principle here. So a couple more things, and then I'm going to invite a panel up to explore this a little bit more. If you want to explore this question a little further, there's a book I want to recommend to you. It's, it's by a guy named Leslie Newbigin, L-E-S-S-L-I-E, Newbigin. The book is Proper Confidence, Faith, Doubt, and Certainty in Christian Discipleship. Proper Confidence, Faith, Doubt, and Certainty in Christian Discipleship. Here's just a few nuggets that Newbigin, he's a, he was a British missionary to India for many years and then became a, a really well-known churchman and missiologist in the church. Here's just a few nuggets from his book. One does not learn anything except by believing something. And conversely, if one doubts everything, one learns nothing. On the other hand, believing everything uncritically is the road to disaster. Someone came up after the first service and said, isn't doubt just part of belief? And I said, yeah, actually, 
you don't believe something without doubt being in there. That's, that, that's why we believe. It's inherent in belief. Newbegin also calls us to look at Scripture as a story, not as a set of propositions, which if we try to address doubt by you just need to know more facts, we miss what the Scripture calls us to. The Scripture doesn't call us to facts or propositions. The Scripture calls us to story. And a story has room for surprises, he says. A story, uh, the, the business of the church, Newbegin writes, is to tell an embodied story of God's mighty acts. He said in another place, Christian faith is not a matter of logically demonstrable certainties, but of the total commitment to, of fallible human beings putting their trust in a God who's faithful and who has called them. I think probably the most accurate answer I have for the objections and the doubts that come to my mind, to other people's mind, people bring up, probably the most accurate answer is I can't really speak for God totally on that. I mean, I actually don't have all knowledge of what God means for that. Um, I don't know all there is to know about that subject, and I don't know all there is that God wants to say about that subject. But can I tell you about my Jesus? Can I tell you about Jesus who helps me in that area and how my relationship with God has helped me to work through that and given me a path to know peace even in the midst of the problems? See, he also writes, both faith and doubt have their role in the whole enterprise of knowing. Faith is primary and doubt is secondary. Faith is primary and doubt is secondary because rational doubt depends upon belief to sustain it. You actually can't doubt something unless you believe something. So belief is primary and doubt is secondary. It can help us refine if we use doubt well, help us refine that belief. There's much more that, that Newbegin writes on this topic, but I'm going to leave that to you in your own, in your own study. I'm going to invite the team to come up as I wrap up, but one of the what this brings me to, and I alluded to it earlier, there, there's a sense in which intellectual humility and theological humility are really, really critical when we talk about this. And, and actually, the other questions that we've looked at as well, I don't claim to have all the answers. I don't claim to have all biblical knowledge about this. I don't claim to have all understanding about what the Bible says. But my faith rests in what I know and the transformation that God has done in my heart through Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus didn't say his main message wasn't believe my arguments or have all the knowledge that you need in order to win every argument and erase all doubts. What did Jesus call us to? He called us to follow him. And, and we're going to find the answers to our doubts, not in just answering the questions better, but in following after him. So to that end, I've invited three friends to come and join me here, and, and they're going to share with you a little bit of their journey. Pam Crosley on the far end on my right, a wife, a mom. Pam's on our worship team here. She also leads our uh, Carmen Trails outreach team to Carmen Trails Elementary School. Uh, if you know Pam at all, she is a, a champion for kind of that intersection of where the gospel hits people who are suffering and hurting whether they're underprivileged kids or, or racial issues, where, where people are hurting, how's the gospel coming in there so that we're truly caring and truly upholding the, the work of God? So it's glad to have Pam with us. Um, Nick Parker is our groups pastor here. 
and Nick came to us. Nick's got experience in the business world, and Nick's story, if you don't know it, is an amazing story of how God rescued him and, and saved him and then brought him into pastoral ministry. He has a real passion for authentic discipleship and wants all of our ministries here and our groups that, have, that meet here are part of First Free to have that real authentic flavor, not just, you know, answer the, answer the questions in your group study, but, you know, really meet with God in a huge way. So glad Nick's with us. And then Todd Brooks to my immediate right. Todd is the regional district superintendent of the central district of the Evangelical Free Church of America, which is the denomination we're part of. Um, Todd and I go way back. He's been a campus minister, campus crusade, church planter, pastor. Todd and I go way back. Uh, when I was a pastor at Cornerstone Evangelical Free Church in Webster Groves, Todd was my pastoral intern there. I had just come to St. Louis to go to seminary, and uh, so it's great to have Todd with us. Todd's also, by the way, one of our supportive missionaries that we, uh, we help, help out Todd in his ministry, so he's part of our, part of our family. So I'm just going to start giving them questions, and uh, we'll, we'll see where this goes. So Pam, I'm going to ask you to start this one. How, how have you encountered doubt in your spiritual life? So how have you encountered doubt in your spirituality? For me, it started when I started noticing the suffering around me in my life, in the lives of people that I love. Um, I started going around the world and seeing tremendous suffering. And I started asking, how is God working here? I don't understand um, the God that I've grown up knowing how does that reconcile with what I'm seeing? Um, and so I started asking, is, is God really who I think he is? And then I started asking what's wrong with me <laughs> that I'm asking these questions um, and really started to dig into, is, is the God that we talk about and that we teach in the church, are we, are we really talking... Um, about the true God or just kind of our interpretation of who he is. Yeah, for me, it's really been more on the relational side of our faith. You know, I've, I've not personally dealt with a lot of suffering, so I don't have that. And, you know, I've always believed in a creator God, so I don't, I don't have that doubt. But the idea of God as our father, you know, how do you have a relationship with an invisible being. And so that's really manifest itself a lot in my prayer life. You know, we, we talked a couple weeks ago about why doesn't God answer my prayers? And, and I've certainly asked those questions, but more so just in general, where is God when I pray? You know, how, how involved is he in this? And, and just how do I seek his presence has been kind of a faith struggle for me. Yeah, John, I loved your imagery of the tributaries. Mm -hmm. Uh, because even as you hear us, you can see that uh, doubt is very personal. Each of us has our own story and experience with doubt. And I was, when I was reflecting on my own spiritual doubt, I realized that uh, maybe against intuition, when things have been really stressful and hard and God has led me into moments of crisis, um, I didn't experience doubt at all that I can remember. Um, but when things are going well, I'm much more prone to have a, um, a little doubt slip in. And I, I kind of uh, tracked that uh, when I'm dependent, um, I don't experience doubt. When I get independent, um, doubt is kind of there. Uh, now it would be easy to think that doubt is a problem 
Um, but actually, that doubt that slips in when I'm independent is super useful for making me once again dependent upon God with the posture that he wants me to have. So, um, so, so that's, that's my experience with that. And that, that's a good reminder, Todd, and a good, good note to emphasize is that while we want to normalize doubt, that it's very common and it's normal for us to have doubt, we don't want to alarm anybody that maybe you don't have a lot of doubt in your life, that you're, you're not worried, um, don't, don't think something may be wrong, uh, because as Todd said, we have these different tributaries and different ways of responding and, and, and experiencing this. So Todd, I'll let you start with this one. Where do you go to find help when you are facing those doubts? You alluded a little bit, but let's keep that on and we'll go right down the line. Yeah, two, two of the main biblical places that I go um, when, when I experience doubt or, or when I'm dealing closely with somebody who is struggling with doubt is uh, first, um, the way that Jesus so graciously related to people that had doubt. Some, some of those showed up in some of the texts that, that John used um, I think of John the Baptist sending messengers while he's sitting in jail. So are you who we think you are or have we been wrong about this? That's my paraphrase. Jesus' gracious example was everything's fine. I've got this, we're on pace. So he didn't shame him, he didn't belittle him, he wasn't impatient and that's his pattern. He's always patient. Uh, sometimes the truth and the clarity with which he um, speaks is uncomfortable for the hearer, but it's never shame. It's never belittling. So that's the main, the main spot in Scripture that I go to um, regarding doubt. What about you, Nick? Where do you go when you're facing doubt? Yeah, that's been a, a little bit of a struggle for me, honestly, because, you know, within the church, I've not always found it to be a safe place to go and ask the questions that maybe you're struggling with. And as a pastor, that really hurts my heart, and I want to help us be um, better about that. Um, but that said, I have found some really key friends and mentors, you know, that, to, to talk through these things. Uh, I just recently read a really great book called uh, When Faith Fails. It's by a former missionary and pastor who had a lot of the same struggles that I did and, again, found the church a kind of a hard place to, to work through those. So I, I like to hear other people's stories in that. Um, but more than anything, John, you mentioned that our, our faith has a source, and that's been really key for me is to go to that source, you know, get alone with Jesus. And even though that relational part is a struggle for me, I found that very helpful to spend time in silence and solitude, spend time in his word and just prayer and asking the Holy Spirit to help me process through these doubts, not run away from him, but run deeper into him. Um, for me, I, I really dove into the scriptures and tried to see who God says he is. And um, I read a book that talked about if you want to know who God is, you look at Jesus because that's what Jesus told us to do. And I have really enjoyed looking at all of the interactions that Jesus had with people and how he led ultimately in love. And um, so as I've been helping my mind find peace in, in the scriptures, I've also been helping my heart just really feel God's love and feel the love of Jesus and lean into that. Wonderful. So Nick, I'm going to let you start with this question. What are some other biblical principles, experiences, or concepts that you think we should consider when we're discussing doubt? What are other biblical principles, concepts, stories, uh, 
that we should consider? Yeah, from a scriptural perspective, it, I've always been really encouraged at actually how often we see doubt throughout the scriptures and how honest um, some of our biblical heroes are with the Lord. You know, you look, read through the Psalms like he did this morning, and David is very honest with God about his doubts. You know, you look at a book like Ecclesiastes, and it's almost cynical in, in that, you know, and then, yet that's still wisdom literature. Um, or, you, you know, Doubting Thomas kind of gets all the publicity, or you mentioned, you know, John the Baptist, you know, who Jesus said was, there was no one greater born of woman than John. He even had some doubts toward the very end. So I found that to be very encouraging when you go to scripture that doubt is pretty common and you can work through it. Mm -hmm. Pam? Excuse me. Um, I, I really... It's the same. I just, I love looking at the scriptures. And for me, the, the, the man in Mark who talked about, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Um, just being able to look at, at my life and the circumstances and, and really understand that I don't want a God that I can completely understand. I want a God that is bigger than me and who is, all-knowing and all-sovereign and still all-loving. And, and that, for me, I've been able to lean into that and um, find a lot of rest there. Great. Todd, what about you? Other biblical concepts, principles? Yeah, I, uh, I uh, love the way that Pam said she wants a God who's bigger. And, and that's great. But you know what? If you don't want that God, it's the God you have. Um, he is infinite. He is the creator, and we are the creation. So, um, so, so we, we remember that, and uh, we, we remember that the issue is the quality of the thing that we believe in, not, not our belief. So it's the object of our faith much more than the faith. That's, that's what gives our faith any power. You know, strong faith in an untrustworthy object is useless. We have a completely trustworthy object of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father and the triune God who creates everything that is. And so when our frail faith is placed in him, um, our doubts are no threat because the object of our faith is completely secure. Wonderful. Thank you. I mentioned when we were talking this week in preparation for this morning, one of the pathways we stumbled upon was to help to get out of a binary trap. It's either you have faith or you're doubting. And it's rarely that clean. And so we, we stumbled upon language of spheres of doubt, um, which helped us. Maybe it'll help you. So if you think of spheres of doubt, it's like, do you doubt that there's a God? No, I believe there's God. Okay, so that's not a doubt. Do you doubt that God's good? No, I think God's good. Okay. Well, do you doubt that, you know, the Bible is, you know, Fully inspired. Yeah, okay, well, there's a, there's a sphere of that doubt. So we can narrow it down to this is the area of your doubt. And then we can, we can hone in on that. So that, that helped me. And one of those spheres of doubt, which we've talked about a little bit, is the church. You know, what, what about the church? Is this really how we're supposed to be doing this? Uh, are we here at First Free or churches like us in suburban America uh, doing church like we're supposed to, or are we, are we missing something? And so the question then, sometimes the doubt I hear is in response to how the church is structured, how the church is operating, especially in affluent areas like ours. So is it okay to wonder 
if we're doing church right and how should we interact with that doubt? Todd, I'll let you start. Yeah, that question reminds me of one of my mentors when I was on crew staff. And he said, college students are messy. Therefore, I'm committed to messy. Now, now that I'm in this role, I've learned that churches are messy and therefore I'm committed to messy. And all of that flows from people are messy. Um, so, uh, you know, the perfect plan, the perfect strategy, the perfect following of um, what God would have a community to be probably doesn't exist and it's probably a good thing. So our um, doubts can be um, super profitable um, in, in helping our, our church find the right way to interact in the culture that God has placed us. Um, I think the key is the attitude because there is a humble doubt that is profitable, a humble questioning that's leading towards something that's thinking the best. And then there's a prideful, scornful doubt that's closely related to the skepticism that you talked about earlier that just isn't um, profitable. So um, I think we need to not be as concerned about the doubt that we might have and be more concerned about the attitude with which we hold that doubt. And as, we'll, as we pursue humility, the Lord is going to use it for his glory, I believe. I think it's important to doubt our systems and because our systems are created by people. Um, so we want to be a church used by God. And I think the responsibility that for me that I see is I want to be the person that God wants me to be. And if we're, we can all do that, we're more likely to develop better systems. Mm -hmm. But also I think it's really good to evaluate are we, really, are we really thinking that our systems are more important or is elevating um, the work of God more important? Glorifying God, um, living in the suffering of people, uh, meeting people where they are like Jesus did. Are we doing those things? And then our systems can come alongside those things. That's a really good point because I've actually experienced in churches like ours and in, in ours sometimes, we, we tend to like put the end goal as to where we're heading and instead of what's the Bible say the end goal is and, and moving that way. Nick, what about you? Yeah, I'd say it's absolutely okay to, to question that and doubt. I mean, I, even in the ministry that I've been involved with for several years, you know, I, I don't think that we're making disciples the way that Jesus did. Um, but this is actually an area that I would kind of flip back around or push back on a little bit. Um, basically, I mean, most of all, because of who Jesus used. You know, you look at just his 12 apostles. I mean, he had Judas with him the whole time, who he knew was going to betray him. He had his own hand-picked apprentice, Peter, at one time was so off mission that he had to say to him, get behind me, Satan. You know, James and John, who the sons of thunder, who wanted to call down fire from heaven onto a village because they weren't believing what they wanted to, you know, totally different from what Jesus was like. And yet, their failures didn't deter Jesus from his mission or deter Jesus from using them in his mission. So yes, there are failures in the church, but we shouldn't let that kind of doubt make us run away from the church, but make us run 
back into the church. And if you've got a, a mission that you feel God has placed on your heart, come in and help. You know, it's been, become kind of popular nowadays to just bash the church and make TikTok videos and Twitter posts about how bad the church is, but then not do anything about it. And I would say, I'd caution that a couple of ways. I mean, first of all, the church is the bride of Christ. You, know, you start insulting my bride and we're gonna have problems. And I'm betting that Jesus is the same. So, but also the church is the body of Christ. And it says in Ephesians 4 that it really only functions fully as each part does its work. So rather than criticizing the church or running away from the church or the faith because the church is failing, let's, let's come in and help the church be the best church it can be by doing our part. I love that. I love that. So one final question that I want each of you to answer. In your area of ministry, and by that I don't just mean a title at the church or a program. I mean ministry at home with your family, your kids, your neighbors, people you work with, wherever. In your, in your area of ministry, in your sphere of influence, how do you strive to show mercy to those whose faith is wavering? And how should we as a church respond to doubt? So Pam, I'm gonna let you begin. How do you strive to show mercy to those who are wavering and how should the church respond? This one is really important to me. We have these conversations in my house a lot. Um, I have some young adult children who are, you know, ministering out in the world. And um, they've been talking about their friends who are being, you know, raised in the church and then coming to a crisis of faith and um, being led to deconstruct their faith. And they're being met sometimes with judgment in the church. And we've talked a lot about how if, if you just let that go, if you let them go do that, or if you judge them for it and condemn them for it or tell them they're doing it wrong, then they're just going to go off and find other people to support them outside of the church, and they're going to walk away. Um, but if we embrace them, if we can give them a safe place to ask their questions, to doubt, to wrestle, um, I've had safe places where I've been able to wrestle with these things and not be told what's right and wrong, but just struggle through it and find Jesus in the middle of it. I think then we become a stronger church and they become followers of Christ. Great. Super. Nick? Yeah, um, as far as, you know, I, I think connection is key and that's what I try to, to do. You know, I mean, Satan wants us to be alone in our doubt and wants us to leave the faith and leave the Lord and leave his church. But man, if we can connect back to the Lord and if you know, in, in my ministry, I, I love to make those connections. You know, I like to be someone who wants to hear someone's story and, and listen with empathy and not judgment like you're talking about. Um, but also find those folks, maybe you're one of those people that's journeyed this walk of, of doubt and you're on the other side of it now. And I'd love to know who you are so I can make those connections with people. And that's what I really hope our group's ministry becomes is that place where we're not just there to, to check the box on doing a study, but we're really there living out life on life discipleship and really getting to know each other on a deep level and being able to ask these hard questions and have these hard conversations in a safe place so that people don't have to go somewhere else to find that. Um, and then as far as like how should the church at large respond, I would say we need to normalize doubt without evangelizing it. 
And, and what I mean by that, we've talked a lot this morning about normalizing it. You, we see that this is a common thing and it's okay to have doubts and you can work through them. When I say evangelize it, I, what I mean is, and that's what I think I've seen in this big deconstruction movement. And, and please hear me, I, I know some people are using that term to really mean digging into the roots of their faith and doing that honestly. But some of these big Christian celebrities, you know, if there is such a thing, that now have made videos and they've made it this cool movement that you should doubt and then leave the church, walk away from the faith, and then just make things that criticize the church, that's really evangelizing it. And as we've, we've heard today, there, there's a lot of different types of doubt. And my doubt, I don't need to project onto you, um, but we can walk through it. We can normalize it and walk through it together without evangelizing it, thinking everybody else should have my same doubt. That's wonderful. And Todd, you have a, a different... Uh, experience with uh, overseeing and connecting yeah. with a lot of different churches. So thank yeah, you. and as, as I'm thinking about it, I'm, I'm just thinking about the planters I work with. I, you know, I, I am a coach and trainer to church planters, you know, all over our region. And there's not one, not one that doesn't ask the question, what have I done? Uh, am I really called to this? This is so much harder than I thought it was going to be. Um, so I, I don't want to evangelize doubt. Mm -hmm. um, Nick gave a, a great article that encouraged us not to make friends with, not make, not make good friends with doubt or, or um, treat doubt as a house guest was the phrase that was used. You know, it's here for a moment. It can accomplish its purposes, but it doesn't belong here in this home, um, in, in, our, in, our, in our life. I mean, we, 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 and I don't, don't misunderstand that as repressing or denying doubt that's there, or pretending like doubt that's there isn't there. It's lean into it and let it accomplish its purposes. Um, and I, I, I realize that's what I do with my planters, is um, I don't, I, I tell them the truth. I don't tell them to just buck up. I uh, walk in it with them and I watch God do what only God can do. And on the other side, I realized that was really good for them. Um, just like it is for my children when they walk through um, similar things. Um, uh, a little scheme that I was exposed to, even in the context of this panel, um, is the idea of um, being anti-fragile. Um, in the coddling of the American mind, the writer talks about how there's fragile things, like a wine glass, you've got to be careful with it because it'll break. There's resilient things, like a plastic tumbler. You don't have to be careful at all. You can throw it around, it's not gonna hurt it. It's not gonna help it, but it's not gonna hurt it. And then there's this other category that's neither primarily fragile nor resilient, but anti-fragile. And an anti-fragile thing that needs the stress of hardship to grow. So my planters are that way. If uh, they're going to lead God's church, they need a dose of hardship. And um, in this specific um, category of suffering called doubt is part of that path. And it ends up being vital for our growth as believers. Uh, the Lord has given us an anti-fragile faith. It needs to be tested. Um, it needs to be stressed. And then it's refined by that refiner's fire to be something that truly glorifies God. Thank you, all three of you, for your participation here. I just am, I'm convinced that of all these questions, and they've all been good, that this, to, to be a church where we can internally 
be honest and interact with our doubt, and then be a witness to a world that's really out of control with doubt and wondering where the answers are can give us a real, real evangelistic and missional access point. And so I encourage you to pray. The, the team's gonna be up front here after the service. If you have any questions, something one of them said is intriguing to you or you wanna talk more, please come up and, and talk to them as well. And if you wanna dive into this more, if you go to efree.org slash discussion, you can have access to some questions. You can go through in your own quiet time, work with your family or in your small group to kind of continue this discussion about doubt and its role in our, in our lives. Let me pray for us and then you'll be dismissed. Father, we want to wrap this up by talking to you, the source of our faith. And we are so grateful and it's come up multiple times in this talk and in this panel that when it comes to wrestling with doubt, we have to really refocus ourselves and make sure we're looking at the God of our faith, the Jesus who calls us to follow him, the Holy Spirit who indwells us and, and gives us the conviction and the, the love and the nurture and the gifting and the closeness and the comfort to walk this journey. I pray as we go throughout this week that we'll be mindful of doubt, but we won't let our doubt overrule our faith that we will be like Peter was when he first stepped out of the boat to see miraculous things that happen in our lives when we keep our eyes focused on Jesus. And for those that struggle with doubt, maybe it's part of their nature, maybe there's depression, discouragement, huge life issues that they're wrestling with right now. I ask that your Holy Spirit would, would dispatch angels to minister to them, to comfort their hearts, to comfort their souls, bring people around them and help them to ask for help so that we can come around them as a community and walk this journey that you would be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for coming today. See you next week.